0: Alive and Kicking with Claire McKenna on News Talk.
1: Yes, you can email the show, alive and kicking at Newstalk.com, or you'll find me on Twitter and Instagram. I'm at Claire McKenna Presents. Coming up this morning, Dr. Heather McKee is a behaviour change specialist and international keynote speaker. She has had several of her papers published looking at why we do or don't do what we do. Today she talks to me about why developing skill power over willpower will always get us further. Dietitian Orla Walsh is a regular on the show and today she's going to talk a bit more personally about her experience of migraines and how sometimes we can misread the triggers. And psychotherapist Owen O'Kane was on the show a couple of years back talking about how 10 minutes a day can really improve your mental health. His book, 10 to Zen, went on to become a bestseller and today he's back to talk about his latest, again in the top 10, called How to Be Your Own Therapist. So what kind of a health and wellness week did I have? Well, I was sick this week. Under the weather is perhaps a better description, which comes with more weight, I find these days, as you constantly wonder when it's going to change on an antigen test. But no, head cold it was. And as someone immersed in the health and wellness world, I do feel that I've let some pillar slip when sickness arrives. But of course, I talk myself down from that stupidity. It's a very normal part of life for our immune systems to be tested. And I don't think there's anything major going on. Just one of those things. You can see there's quite a lot of self-inventory goes on in my life. So once it arrived, I self-prescribed a day of rest, which I rarely do. I was working the following day, so I didn't want it to get any worse. And I stayed in the house all day. I slept in. I ate nutritious and comforting food. I watched the Billie Eilish documentary on Apple TV and the House of Gucci movie with a candle lit under a heated blanket. So I certainly know how to take care of myself. And the next day at work, I was fine still nose blowing which is not attractive but adrenaline carried me through and i had the most incredible experience hosting intuitive parenting in dublin the speakers were talking about raising kids without the notion of good and bad foods with the aim of a healthy relationship with food and their body at the core there were so many brilliant speakers so just to mention a few of them dr adine butler was talking about among other things, the Satter method devised by feeding expert Ellen Satter and it says the parents or caregivers we can take leadership of what, when and where feeding takes place. So we buy and prepare the food we serve it at the table for example eating as a family is another possible example. But what we do then with the kids is allow them the autonomy over how much and whether or not they eat at all, trusting that they know themselves and allow themselves to tap into their own appetite and hunger and satiety cues, which is easier said than done. We heard from psychologist Dr. Deirdre Walsh on managing children's emotions and also Sarah Sproul on how to talk to our kids about sex and their bodies. And a big take home I took from her is that we should call their genitals by the proper names. As I say, I can't go into all the speakers, but I will also mention Sinead Crow and Neve Orbinski, who organized the whole event. And Neve talked about how it's essential we put our self-care needs first, which sometimes means doing things we don't want to do, she said. So you're addressing blocks or issues in your life, not necessarily just going for a massage. Sorry about that. I learned so much and Often, even though I've alluded to some challenging work there, with parenting and the many parts of your life, you just need to stop overthinking and overcomplicating and just lean into your intuition, trusting that underneath it all, you know what's best. You can email the show newstalk.com Now, Dr. Heather McKee is a behaviour change specialist and international keynote speaker. She's had several of her papers published looking at why we do or indeed don't do what we do And works with countless organisations to deliver wellness programmes that last. When it comes to habits, Heather says skill power over willpower is where we should put our focus. Heather, you're very welcome to Alive and Kicking. Great to be here. So Heather, when it comes to changing habits, most of the time we know what we're supposed to be doing. We know really what healthy eating looks like. We know we're supposed to try and cook it from scratch if we can. We know we're supposed to be getting out and moving our bodies on a regular basis. There's kind of this idea in our head that it's either really a tough way to live or you can have all the fun. So knowing can be very different from doing, can't it?
2: You've hit the nail, now, Claire. Like I always think, like how many of us now we need to eat more vegetables? How many of us now we need to sleep more? How many of us know that moving more is better? You know, how many of us know that managing our stress is better? We know all these things, but it's it's actually putting our intentions into actions where we slip up. And I always talk about, you know, We can have, you know, the perfect diet plans. We can have the perfect exercise plans. We can have all what I call the ingredients of change. Um, But if we don't know how to take those ingredients and put them into the context of our busy lives, and I call that the method, then we can't really um, get to where we want to be with our health goals. And and ultimately, I see behavioural science as the method in the recipe for health. So how we take, you know... um, that that understanding how we take that information and actually turn it into implementation so you know the actions the goals the routines the habits that we build every single day and i think that's where a lot of us fall down is you know we get kind of i don't know seduced by inf- getting more information more information and actually what we need is more focusing on skills um, more than anything rather than just constantly trying to get information um, as focusing on skills like you know how do we develop habits how do we develop routines how do we bounce back from failure how do we understand ourselves more even you know like so many people you know go about you know setting up new habits and they think okay well I'm going to start with um, losing weight for example and then they think, OK, well, I want to be a certain weight on the scales. And that becomes their measure of success. And they, they look to this particular outcome. And, you know, if they stand on the scales, regardless of how much they've done in the gym or how well they've eaten that week or, you know, how great they feel. If the number on the scales doesn't tell them what they want, they feel disempowered. They feel demotivated. And they're just like, well, I might as well throw in the towel Um but if you can get to know yourself, if you can get to know your motives, um, what I like to call intrinsic motivation is that sticky type of motivation. If you get to know your why. So why is it important for you to lose weight beyond a number on the scales? Um, that can really help you um, really kind of get started and stick with those goals. Um, and, and and the question there, and uh, people can ask themselves today if they've got any goal that they're trying to form or any habit that they're trying to create, What? what does this give me back in my life? What does this contribute? Um, kind of a deeper why. Looking beyond, you know, there's, other things that we get taught are important. You know, um, counting the calories or knowing what our weight on the scales is or, you know, getting to a certain amount of steps a day or, you know, what our fitness tracker tells us is good or, you know, even potentially what our doctor or our spouse or other people want to know. Um, Ultimately, what we know from science is that if you do things for performance or appearance reasons, so, you know, the social media likes or any of those things, it's only going to be short-lived. Whereas if you find why it's meaningful for you, what it contributes to your life, that makes it much more likely that you'll be able to sustain it. So asking yourself, you know, how do I want to feel? Who does it make me? You know, what what does this contribute? What does this give me back? You know, is it more focus? Is it, you know, that you're actually better apply yourself at work? Is it that you're actually being able to be a more supportive parent? Is it that, you know, you're a role model for your community um, or your family? Um, and ultimately, you know, if you ask yourself why, often enough you really can get to that true why so you know weight loss um you know or or you know a change in fitness no longer becomes a number it becomes well actually what it gives me back and then people start thinking about not just a goal or a snapshot in time but actually okay well, what can I do each day because you can you can serve that in a habitual way each day whereas a goal is just a snapshot it's just a number on a scale it's just a one moment in time whereas each day if you're engaging in healthy practices you're living up to what's important to you what's important to your values but you're also seeing a direct contribution on your life rather than doing it for other external extrinsic reasons, extrinsic reasons
1: And what about the people then? I mean, that would speak to somebody who may have tried to lose weight many times and and not got there or there could be another health goal. They'd be like, you know what, I'd love to get in the sea or I'd love to go walking and I'm just not finding the time or I start home cooking. But what about the people I'm really fascinated about lately who are just happy coasting? They're happy where they are. They're not that bothered. They're like, whatever, I'll deal with whatever health implication comes up. I'm just going to be in the now what about those people that aren't bothered about making change?
2: Yeah, it's interesting. I find that quite interesting because I I think if you're if you're not motivated, if you haven't got a motivation, then you know people shouldn't be forced into change. And 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 everyone comes to, ch- to change at a different pace. And there's different things that spark um, a motivation for change in individuals. Um, and if you haven't got a health scare or you haven't you know um, been told you need to engage in certain practices, then I would say, you know, like I would always want everyone to be their happiest and healthiest self, but ultimately the choice is up to the individual. And in behavioural science, we talk a lot about autonomy Um, and autonomy is kind of having ownership or feeling like you've got choice over your decisions and forcing people into change is not a way to create success. But say that's your other half or, you know, someone in your family and you are concerned about them, but they haven't yet got to the stage where, you know, they've they've really come to the realisation that's important to them. Um, One thing you can do is try and change the environment or be a positive role model for them. And what I mean by that is, you know, can you make the healthier choice the easier choice at home? So, you know, can you rearrange your fridge? So the first thing you see, you know, when you open it isn't your child's leftover birthday cake. It's, you know, chopped up carrots or cherry tomatoes. Or can you, you know, put some exercise gear in your living room so that actually, you know, you're sparked when you go in there to remember, oh, yeah, while the kettle boils, I like to do, you know, a kettlebell swing or whatever else. But can you be an influence in that environment for that other person? And then it's important to talk to people because sometimes often people will say they're not motivated but actually they're just scared um, and they're scared of accepting you know what, what the reality is or they're scared of finding out what the reality is and and so a lot of the time with that with, it's what we call a motivation where they don't seem to have any motivation at all um, if you take a bit bit deeper you can find you know that actually that person is afraid maybe they've had a negative past experience or they don't feel competent or capable of actually getting on that journey and that's where I think we have to be really careful because so many um, health programs promise this overnight transformation and this overnight success but that puts people under a horrific amount of pressure and you know success in life isn't overnight you know if we think about you know. Getting a degree or, you know, going travelling even, you know, or um, anything that's, you know, getting a particular job or getting to a certain position in your career. You know, none of those things are being a parent. None of those things happen overnight. They're they're constant small changes that we make over time and they compound and they accumulate into those larger results.
1: Yeah, with uh, failures, with learning, yeah. with all, it's it's up and down. It's not just one big line all the way up to success.
2: No, but we expect that, you know, like so often we expect to be able to go from A to B without any deviation on the path. And like life doesn't work in the way, habits don't work in that way. We can actually, you know, we can learn a lot from, you know, the entrepreneurial mindset of failure way to success. And actually, you know, a lot of people are worried to even get started because of the shame of failing kind of holds them back. But actually what we found in some of our studies, those that were most successful over the long term were those that have learned from failure, those that actually leaned into failure, those that saw failure as a way to grow and learn more about themselves on their journey to success. And in fact, one of the conclusions of our study was failure is success if you learn from it. And there were the people that said, you know, oh, I've eaten well all week, but on Thursday I had a Snickers or whatever it happens to be. And then they feel like, you know, some some people felt like, oh, that's me, that I've gone off track. But these people that were long-term successful maintainers, they maintained their habits over you know, five, ten years. They said, well, that was just a blip. I'm going to understand why, you know, I had that. Or maybe they had it and they really enjoyed it. And they thought, oh, that was a really enjoyable moment. Now I'm back to eating in a certain way. Um, and they didn't bring in this shame, but they actually looked to learn um, from every situation and grow. And, and that's the thing, we're never going to do it perfectly. And actually, the faster we fail, the faster we learn and the more we can then take. And a lot of people say, like, Oh, I failed so many times in the past, what's the point of even trying? Um, the point in trying is to understand why you failed, to reflect on those failures. And each time, you know, we'll learn something more. Because I say, you know, habits are for life. They're not just for January, you know. we They're not like, you know... It's not like we brush our teeth in January and our dental hygiene is done for the rest of the year, <laughs> Do you know, if we don't keep brushing our teeth, we're, we're, you know, and if we don't keep engaging in our habits, you know, they're not going to give us the gifts that we want. Um, but it's important that actually we find a way to understand that failure is okay. We understand what they give us back in our lives. And I, I think another point that's really important, Claire, is um, we find a way to make them joyful and fun because... You know, like you said at the start, you know, if we're thinking about health and thinking about getting healthy and thinking about our habits in a way that it's like deprivation and struggle and it's got to be hard to be uh, worthwhile. You know, there's a lot of studies they have shown that actually people who exercise for the benefit of exercise rather than for the fun of exercise are much less likely to actually sustain that exercise long term. Whereas people who choose exercise because they find it enjoyable, they're much more likely to be actually be carrying that out over the long term.
1: And it's okay to start small. Like you mentioned there, when the kettle's boiling, pick up, the kettlebell and start swinging it and yeah. people will think that's not enough I have to clear out every cupboard in my house make sure that everything is on the, the, the good list if there even is one and I have to go to a gym and I have to go at five in the morning before work and then by Thursday they're like Do you know what I, I can't live that way they don't realize that. I mean, how many times does the kettle boil a day? Three, four times. That doing that every day with your kettlebell over time amounts to as much as going to a, a gym.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I love that, Claire. Like, um you know, even if we think about like, let's think about creating a meditation habit. Like, for example, people think, oh, I have to sit in a quiet space for at least ten minutes, and and no, you can you can breathe while your kettle boils, and that accumulation over time actually provides you with a relaxation during their day but we set out and you know new year comes around and we're like right I'm gonna give up sugar I'm gonna run every day I'm going to be nice to my other half I'm gonna save loads of money I'm gonna do all the things and actually the more we add in the more we take away from one focal goal it's a concept called goal dilution in psychology more that we dilute our effectiveness Um, And that's because, you know, willpower is a limited resource. It's like sand running through an hourglass, you know, over the course of a day, it gets depleted. You know, that's why it's easier to form healthy habits in the morning. Um, But the thing is, willpower is like a muscle. So the more we exercise it, the more... You know, if if, let's say I went to the gym for the next week and I did bicep curls every day. You know, by the time I get to this time next week, I wouldn't be able to pick up a glass of water. But if I went once or twice, you know, with active rest and recovery in between, I get stronger over time. And that's what we do when we train our habits in a bite-sized way, in a small way. We're actually training our willpower at the same time to get stronger over time. Rather than, you know, throw everything in the kitchen sink at it and try and do all the things all at once, the best way for it to get a habit to stick is to actually do it in the smallest. And I often say the most laughably small way possible. Um, And there's a good way to check in on this with yourself is to ask yourself, does it pass the giggle test? And what I mean by that is, is it laughably small enough? Um, Because actually that's what helps you gain momentum over time. And there's a fun study where they got people to create um, flossing habits. And they got one group of people to just go out and they said to them, floss every day, um, you know, and we'll follow up with you in three months. And there was another group where they told them just floss one tooth a night and they'll follow up in three months. And when they followed up, it was the one tooth group that actually were sustaining the habit the longest. And they didn't just floss one tooth, but, you know, one made the barrier to entry so easy. It made it frictionless. It made it so easy for them to engage that they were just much more likely to actually go about taking that first step. And it's the same with the one minute of meditation or the one minute of running or the one minute of kettlebell swings or whatever it happens to be. Just get started for a minute and see how it goes. And you can quit after that minute. That's absolutely fine. But what you want to do is set yourself a minimum viable habit. You want to say to yourself, this is the minimum I'm going to do, rather than constantly beating yourself over the head with a stick and being like, well, I have to do 30 minutes or it's pointless altogether. Because what people, you know, don't understand is habits need to be flexible in order to be sustainable. And you're not always going to be able to do the 30 minute run. So if that's a 10 out of 10, what does a 9 out of 10 look like? What is an 8? What is a 7? What is a 6? You know, a 4 out of 10 for you if 10 out of 10 is running three times a week. Maybe a 4 out of 10 is going for a walk once a week and running once a week and then doing some other activity at another time. Maybe it's just a walk around the block. We need to actually look at making things simpler to engage with because that makes them easier to engage with and habits are formed through context-dependent repetition do the same thing in the same circumstance enough times it becomes a habit and so if we make it so easy to do laughably small you know it's much more likely that we'll actually engage with it and repeat it often enough that it'll become a long term habit.
1: And that's just not what we're sold as you say in the whole area of health and wellness it has to be huge it has to be punishing and I think people will be really happy to hear it can be laughably small to make really true and long lasting transformation. Behavioural change specialist Dr. Heather McKee, thank you so much for coming in.
2: Thanks, thanks, Claire. Thanks for your
1: time. Coming up after the break, dietitian Orla Walsh on her experience of migraine.
2: Alive and kicking
1: on News Talk. Now, dietitian Orla Walsh has been a regular on this program. If you haven't come across her work, I urge you at the very least to follow her on social media for no nonsense nutrition advice you can trust. Today, she joins me on a more personal capacity to talk about her experience of chronic migraine. Well, Orly, you're very welcome. Thanks for having me on. It just shows the power of nutritious food because whenever I see you, you're always brimming with energy, glowing, and yet you've been living with chronic migraine for a long time. Yeah, the glow might be sweat, but yeah, no, I,
3: <laughs> I am very well and it's It's hard when you have a condition and you live your life really well. And I see it in my clinic all the time, people coming in frustrated. They're like, how am I suffering with this? I'm so healthy or their health is such a priority for them. So, yeah, it's something I think that's in part why I'm embarrassed by having migraine because I want to exude health because I am, you know, trying my very best. Um, So I feel like my body's let me down.
1: Yeah, I mean, you wrote about this for the Irish Independent. Why did you decide to talk about it?
3: Yvonne Hogan asked me to do migraine and I said, do I make it personal? And she was like you said, I didn't know you had migraine. And and she was like, absolutely. Tell your story. And in some ways... judging by the response I got, because Instagram, like, the message flooded in from fellow, especially women, suffering from migraine. Um, But I still feel like I left stuff out and I held back a little bit because you don't want to appear like you're moaning or, you know, gratitude is everything these days and I don't want to appear like I'm not grateful for the life I live. Um, And the more and more I talk to people now and I joked on the way in I don't think my brothers know of migraine don't think they read the article but I don't talk about it enough I feel um, and that's because I don't want to appear like a moaning but the more I talk the realize I realize I'm sharing my story and it benefits others but also it's it's my story and there's a difference between explaining what happens to you on a day-in day-out basis versus moaning and whining.
1: Yeah. And I think that's a really important point within health. And you also touched on something I've come across a lot. This sort of shame around any kind of condition or illness that you've done something wrong. And, you know, I've had a head cold this week and I'm like, what have you done wrong? What pillar of health have you let fall down? It's very normal for our bodies to be tested. And just because you're a nutritionist who works really hard who has a beautiful family doesn't mean you don't get chronic migraine and suffer because of that. Yeah,
3: and I suffered during pregnancy and I'm always, I, I get hyperemesis and I very rarely talk about it. I didn't talk about, well, I talked at length to my close friends about the delivery of my daughter, which was horrendous. It was really, it was horrible from start to finish. And again, talking is so important, and again, we're scared to talk because we're. I suppose after the article, even though my mom and sister and my husband listened to me talk about migraine a lot, it was my dad who texted and he said, "I'm extremely sad for you and extremely proud of you."
1: Oh, the dads kill me. So, tell us a bit about your experience though, because it is quite full on.
3: Yeah. So, migraine tends to well when it starts in childhood. Um, it tends to be a little bit more boys than girls. And then puberty hits and hormones let us down. Um, The hormones do protect us in other ways, but they let us down with regards to migraine and more women than men or girls and boys at that age um, get migraine. And then it kind of escalates. Generally speaking, migraine peaks in 35 to 45-year-olds. 40 is like the cruncher. Um, Something to look forward to in three years off. But for me, I suppose... Like many people with migraine, you, you can't pinpoint it always. So I didn't realise it was migraine until my early 20s and I was studying a master's um, in nutrition in London and I used to get these headaches. And it wasn't until my mom explained that my granny had migraine and, you know, that that's what probably was. It wasn't so bad until I hit my 30s. And 30s, it just went downhill very fast. And maybe it did, maybe it didn't, because I was single and... Um, living life um, in my 20s and I met my husband two weeks after my 30th birthday and we we got very serious, very fast. I couldn't get rid of my out of the apartment that I just moved into and it wasn't until he was around me all the time that he goes you know you get migraine like every other day, you know you get it all the time and we have a family, I have a family history on both sides of heart disease and stroke nearly everybody and one morning I woke up and the right side of my face had fallen and so I walked over to the GP which was across the road and they immediately was like Vincent's and I went in and they were brilliant in there and my sister uh, worked in there at the time and they were brilliant and you know bloods, everything CT, MRI and they were like good news it's not stroke good news it's not MS but it's migraine and so often people go it's just migraine and it's when you hear those words, it's a relief because there are far worse things to be told. But to say just migraine is unfair because it won't kill you, but it is guaranteed to make you miserable. Um, if you have episodic migraine, which is, you know, less than a week of migraines, a month nearly, just a spotting of migraine throughout the month or throughout the year, it's hard on people because they they, they need to always plan for a migraine happening. So, if they're going to a wedding or, or going out or going out in the day, they always have to have something with them because they have to prepare for an unexpected migraine. When you have chronic migraine, it's nearly all the time. So, every day you're battling the aftermath of one, um, or one's brewing or one's happening. So, it's this constant thing. So, for migraine, is, migraine tends to happen in four stages. So the first stage is where it's brewing. So when people say I had a migraine on Tuesday, it might have started on Sunday. And on Sunday, you might notice you're yawning all the time, even though you're not tired or you're slurring or you're difficulty finding words or you're erect, or you're constipated or you're grouchy or you're tired. There's a whole host of things that can happen. Um, In the hour or the very kind of close lead up to the migraine hitting, You can have these experiences and they're called positive and negative, not because they're good or bad, but positive meaning they add new behaviours in. So you could get an eye twitch or something like that, or I get this blurred vision. Um, or negative in meaning that they take away something from you. So you could like the fall of the right side of my face, for example, or tingling. I get this weird tingling or there's lots of different things that I get. And I always, um I forget them when I'm talking about it. But when it's happening, I remember so clearly. And then the headache comes. I'm really grateful to my migraine because it allows me to put my kids to bed. So I dig deep. I know the pain is getting harder and harder for me, most people, it happens one side of their head and it throbs. For me, it's my eyes. And generally, migraine kind of migrates back through your head or across your head in kind of three to six mil- it Well, it doesn't matter how fast, but you can actually feel it. And so mine is getting worse and worse. And if you remember the Game of Thrones um, horrific scene, well, one of the many, yeah. where they <laughs> squeeze the eyeballs Stop, off the guy and his brain bursts one. open. Yeah, I turned to my husband with a smile on my face and I said, that's it. That's exactly how I feel. I feel like someone's putting their thumbs on my eyeballs, pushing them in and maybe setting them alight. And then all of a sudden my head explodes like it's like my brain is too big for my skull. And usually I get the kids down and it happens quite quickly and nausea will follow and I need to then get to sleep before it stops me getting to sleep. But sometimes you just conk out like the other, like Tuesday night I had one so bad and I just kind of hit and my husband knows to come up, I hit the phone because he was downstairs working, I hit the phone and just called him and then he came up knowing and he came up with my pain relief um, and and even knows the appropriate stuff depending on the time of day and then he got me an ice pack for my head and I went and I had this gel strip across my forehead and I I woke up the middle of the night with the ice pack on my head and I must have fallen asleep but I fell asleep crying and I f- I often wake up in the morning and I've clenched my fists so much over the night that I have moon shapes on my palms and Although my upper back and my neck are a sign of migraine brewing, they stiffen and get sore and they creak when it brews. Because I'm clenched and protecting myself from the pain, or trying to, I I I get real like my upper body is just in bits. And after a migraine, it can sometimes feel like you've ran ten k, like the clappers, and your ex- your whole body's exhausted. Some people get. Um, elated and they get elation and that's a lovely thought that when it's over they're high as a kite for a day or so um, so everyone's experience is different, no two migrainers are the same the preventatives, there's you know, there's stuff that you can take to manage the symptoms like stem all or something for the sickness and pain meds there's medications that you can prevent them coming on and generally they're hoping for a 50% reduction in frequency and uh, duration and severity so not that great um, but there's a whole host of stuff that you can try um, and then there's stuff like injections so there's um, a block that you can get in your spine you can only get it a couple of times but I'm definitely going home for that I'm going to um, see if my new neurologist whenever I get an appointment probably 2028 um, that I will get that done hopefully hopefully um, there's Botox as well, so 31 injections. So I got that done, but to be honest, that month was so bad with migraine, I'm not sure if that's working. But the Botox, which is usually 31 injections into your scalp, uh, your neck and your shoulders, uh, that tends to work the more
1: times you get it. So that's just relaxing those muscles, so hopefully helping you out. Yeah. And I can see you're desperate to try Oh, I try everything. anything to get rid of it because that is such... A tough experience and yet you're still managing your own business, full to the brim with clients. You've a very young family, a husband you, I assume, would prefer to be sitting downstairs watching Netflix with rather than having him come with an ice pack. A social life, a family and yet you have to take to your room several times a week.
3: Yeah, I suppose if there's words I missed out from the article in The Independent were alone and isolation. Because you're very alone. And this is a nasty thought so bear with me listeners but I would love for all my close friends and relatives to get migraine once. And if they did I think there would be a level of understanding. But Sure, listen, there is worse things out there. And like my sister is type 1 diabetes. so Like she just trumps me every time. (laughs) Um, But it is hard. And I suppose it's to keep hope that something will work. And for a lot of people, they're like, oh my God, I tried this and game changer. And I'm hoping that I'll get a game changer. And for a lot of people, and this is what I see people in my clinic with migraine for, is like, diet has such a big impact because if you don't eat balanced meals and if you don't spread your nutrition out across the day quite evenly you're you're going to potentially trigger a migraine um you can't go long gaps without eating Hydration has to be on point, and that's not just water; it's electrolytes too. There are supplements that help, like magnesium, and if you take it at nighttime, it might also help with sleep. Now, be careful with the magnesiums because magnesium oxide might give you the runs, but something like magnesium glycinate might work, or magnesium three and eight. There's vitamin B two, and a lot of neurologists would recommend that alongside, just say a beta blocker like propranolol. Um, There's coenzyme, Q10. There's lots of things that you could potentially try with the right guidance. So it just depends. Like, So for example, if you came into me with menstrual migraine, I might be like, okay, let's try maybe vitamin B6 or vitamin E or phytoestrogens. There are lots of options and diet does definitely help. And I'm grateful that I know that because where would I be if I didn't? Um, And sometimes when people come in, And they haven't maybe even seen a neurologist or maybe their GP hasn't recently upskilled in it. Sometimes coming
1: in to me is helpful because I know I have research. You're giving them proactive steps or something to try and take. And if nothing else, you're getting your foundation steady. Yes. And migraine would like you to live a boring life. It would like you to sleep well
3: and exercise conservatively and everything. Um, You know, and you have to kind of tailor all aspects to your, of your life to try and better your migraine experience if it's chronic, um, especially when you're waiting for a medicinal solution, which there may or may not be one. But you have to keep trying. The research is growing, and I think Migraine Ireland are doing a good job of you know trying to get get people to better understand it, um, because for a lot of people they think it's just a headache, and the headache i can handle it's everything else it tries to steal occasions from me like even my my own wedding day i remember taking loads of medication in the morning just to prophylactically get in there to stop any migraine happening it haunts you and it follows you there's you can't run from it and i sometimes i get sick of running um and you found me in a week and it's unfortunate that i cried but this week I'm sick of running but next week I'm sprinting and I'm enthusiastically sprinting from it and I just want other people to know that there's lots of solutions and to be holistic with it one solution doesn't fit all yoga might be wonderful for the majority but for some people putting their head down near the ground is a nightmare Um, exercise is great sometimes high intensity exercise can trigger it for some people Um, but lots of people have eventually found their solution so I'd encourage people not to give up hope.
1: Well, I don't think it was unfortunate that you cried. I think it is the best thing to be open and honest. And the more we talk about it, the more understanding there is. So I'm very grateful for you to be talking openly and honestly about it. Can you tell me to end um, and perhaps help you to come back from being upset? Yeah. One of the most BS things you've seen on social media at the minute around food oh there is so
3: much oh like the detox thing never ends you know the juices or the tablets that just make you go to the loo a lot they're just nonsense and they're dangerous like at best they're a waste of money um, you know, at worst, they can kill you. So it's probably the detox stuff. Um, unnecessary supplementation as well. Like I'd encourage you not to just take supplements willy nilly, but talk to a dietitian, um, unless it's vitamin D and folic acid. And that's a no brainer. Or if you don't eat fish, omega three. There's so much on there. And I wish I suppose sometimes on Instagram, I was talking more about nutrition and less dispelling myths. But if I'm known as the Mythbuster, I will take that.
1: <laughs> well, look, I understand why your dad said he was proud because with all that going on, you still carry off your work, your family life. You're still effervescent whenever I meet you. So, kudos to you. If people want to find out more about your work, they can go to Orlawatchnutrition.ie. OrlaWatch, Thank you so much for talking to me today. Thanks for having me on. Coming up after the break, best-selling author and psychotherapist Owen O'Kane on how we can be our own therapist. Alive and kicking on News Talk. Owen O'Kane is a psychotherapist and former NHS mental health lead. He has been a previous guest on this show, and I would urge you to search and go back and listen to that. He was talking about 10 to Zen, one of his first books, which went on to be a Sunday Times bestseller. And he is back with a brilliant topic. Also in the top 10, may I add, how to be your own therapist. And he joins me on the line now. Hello, Owen. How are you? Hey, Claire. I'm good. Yeah, not bad at all, actually. Busy, but busy in a good way.
0: So it's keeping me occupied.
1: Well, thank you very Um, much for coming back on the show. And this is an interesting topic. You're not trying to do yourself or therapists out of a job are you
0: <laughs> it's interesting i did an interview in london a few weeks ago and the guy presented and said to me what's your next bit going to be how to make yourself redundant <laughs> because it seems like an odd seems like an odd thing to do and and, and i guess really look my, my premise is even in regular therapy your goal really as a therapist is to equip somebody with enough skills so that by the end they know exactly hard to manage their own stuff so actually the job of a good therapist is to help someone become their own therapist and i got to thinking about because that, that would be a great book and of course at the moment wait lists for therapy are astronomically high and private therapy isn't cheap so a combination of all those factors i thought you know something people probably need therapy more than ever at the moment so why don't I just write a book you know with my experience of you know what you would do in therapy you know i'm not saying it's a replacement for individual therapy. But actually, it's a good place to get started. And if it helps people work out how they may kind of move forward and get on top of stuff they're struggling with, um, well, then, you know, it felt like the right thing to do. And I'm delighted. I mean, I'm glad I did it. And the the initial response has been incredible. So I think it's been a good decision. And, and, you know, it really seems to be helping people. And what is the purpose of therapy? I mean, it depends on the context. But, you know, I think most of us, Claire, almost crash land into adulthood. And we're not really that equipped to deal with negative, critical thoughts. We're not really equipped to deal with the difficult emotions when they come up. It's not something, certainly back in in my time, You know, I think you're younger than me, so you may have done a bit more of it, but we weren't taught in school what to do with emotions or how to work out difficult stuff. It's not something that's part of curriculum. And I think for many of us, we get into adulthood and all of this big stuff comes up and it's just really easy to get overwhelmed. I think that's what good people think going to therapy is just about having a nice little chat and stuff. It's actually more than that. Good therapy is changing the way you think, how you manage your emotions, the people you surround yourself with changing behaviours that don't serve you well. So, I mean, it literally is an overhaul of your life. So, I, you know, my argument would be most people at some point would benefit therapy. And let, let's be honest, the last couple of years have been pretty much a nightmare for a lot of people. So I think, you know, it's like, I, I look. probably an easier way to describe it is like, it's having a personal trainer for your mind. And I think if you've got good skills to help you manage some of the difficulties that go on in the mind, then it'll, it'll serve you well.
1: And when you're studying any kind of psychology or to be a psychotherapist, you have to yeah. undergo so much therapy yourself. So what kind of yeah. difference has it made to your life?
0: Massive. I mean, I did therapy in my early 20s. I think the last time we spoke, I may have talked to you about this, but I I was, you know, going through a difficult time in my own life. I was coming out, was trying to make a lot of big decisions in my life. And a friend of mine said, why don't you go on? talk to your therapist and I went and I was gobsmacked by the, the whole process I mean the, the one thing that did shock me was I thought it would be quite lovely and fluffy and nice and actually it wasn't it was quite difficult to points because you're actually fierce to look at yourself and to really examine your own life and make decisions around okay God, I am getting stuck in parts of my life and I don't know how to become unstuck. And I think for me, that's what it taught me most, It really learned me to look at myself truthfully and think, okay, there are things that I'm doing that are not making this better. And that's a a really tough thing for most people to look at themselves because all of us, we do this all the time. It's part of our human nature. It's much easier to say I'm struggling because of what happened or what he did or what she did or because this happened and there might be some degree of truth in that but what we don't realize is often we we get in our own way and we become stuck and I think that's what therapy taught me it helped me to unravel all of that stuff and actually look the bottom line is it helped me get comfortable in my own skin and that, that took time but actually it was worth it and to the, you know we still have therapy it's part it's part of the deal really so if I have stuff that's going on for me that's tricky um, I talk it through with my therapist and, um, you know, it's, it's a lifeline, really. It helps sustain me and it helps me do my work well.
1: And is it true that one of your first experiences of therapy was speaking to a nun? It was a
0: nun, yeah. I mean, that was, I mean, when I look back on it now, the irony, because the whole challenge and difficulty at the time was I was about to come out to family and friends. And this mate of mine said, look, I know someone really good that you should go and talk to. And when I got there, it was a convent. And this lady comes to the door, and um, just suddenly the coin dropped. I said, oh my God, this is a nun that I'm doing therapy with. And she was brilliant. You know, it didn't matter what I was coming with. She was just a really decent, lovely human being who, who got me and understood it. And, and of course, you know, she saw through me really quickly. I mean, I was in my early 20s at the time. And I remember her asking me how I was doing. And I said, yeah, yeah I'm grand and everything's fine and I'm good and I'm good. And then she said to me at one point, why are you here? And I just went quiet and uh, I didn't really know what to say. And I said, well, I'm struggling. And I was really struggling to tell her what I was really there for. And she said, oh, it's really interesting that you keep telling me you're fine, but you don't sound fine and you don't look fine. And then I just went quiet and she said, you seem sad. And the minute she said that, you know, I kind of disintegrated. And to be honest, that was probably one of the most powerful moments, you know, when somebody just gives you permission to say, look, I am struggling and I'm not, you know, I'm not feeling great at the moment. And that was it, really. We we started to work from there and we we did some brilliant work together. She was incredible.
1: And I spoke on the show recently about going to therapy for the first time myself this year yeah. and yeah. how I really struggled with making the decision because I felt that nothing major had happened in my yeah. life. Yeah. So yeah. why did I I need to go? And I also yeah. said that... People will be surprised, as I was, that there's no there's no fixing of you. There's not this genius sitting in the other chair telling you what to do with your life. There's just some gentle nudging as you unpack your life. And obviously it's a very safe environment. You have somebody who has studied for years to understand everything from trauma to relationships to how the mind works. But essentially, it's empowering you to look at your own life and make those changes. Absolutely.
0: And I'm delighted you were able to talk about that, because, I mean, I think people like yourself who are, you know, out there on the media talking very publicly about this stuff, it's hugely important because, you know, one of the arguments I make in this book is anyone would benefit therapy. And one of the things I try to do in this book is to help people see that your story is your strength. You know, most people see the difficult parts of their story as a weakness or a difficulty, whereas actually, no, even the difficult stuff, that's the stuff that you can use to transform, you know, your life and turn yourself around, you know, and and, and work with the difficult stuff and, you know, discover... Your, your resilience and your strength and and, and discover all of it really because we, we all kind of we want to feel happy and light and excited all of the time but that is not the real world and it's about learning to work with the more difficult emotions as well. They're all part of the same story And often these difficult emotions when they come up they're there to help you and to guide you they're not there as an obstruction. And I think when you realize that in therapy that all of these things can really help guide your life and actually empower you and free you up. I mean, the first half of the book is like a crash course in therapy. It's how do you make sense of your story? Why might you struggle today? What are the parts of your story that would make sense about why you might have occasional struggles in particular areas? I think that can be really liberating for people to, to work out that there's nothing wrong with them. As a human being, it's just stuff may have happened that just make parts of adulthood really, really difficult. So, I mean, you know, look, it's my job and it's been my bread and butter for a long period of time. But I just kind of think for anyone out there who is considering it, I'd say, look, you know, don't even stop to consider it. Just take the plunge. And if you can get access to your therapist, then absolutely do it. Or if you want to get started, I don't want to sound like I'm hard selling my book, but, you know, get started with a book because it'll, it'll kind of get the initial groundwork done and give you enough to get working on on a daily basis.
1: And we have to want to do the work as it's called on ourselves if we want things to change or to change Mm. how we feel. So, yeah. What does that work involve? As you say, the first part of your book really deals with that, your your real life story and, yeah. and taking yeah. all of that out. What is the yeah. work that we keep hearing about?
0: Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, it, it's split up into different areas. So for me, it's about, OK, you can divide it into sections, but I think about often think about the thought, the thought element of therapy work and that most people fall into patterns of thought. You know, they can be self-critical, self-judgmental. Um, self-deprecating people give themselves a hard time so a big part of the work is helping people reframe the way they think about themselves and the way they think about life that's a big part of the work and most people believe that they are the content of their thoughts you know so if people have a voice in their head saying you're rubbish you're not good enough you could be better you should be this you should be that that's not a factual voice often it's just an old unhelpful pattern so a big part of the work is learning how to manage difficult thought another part of the work then is the emotional stuff how do you deal with all of these emotions that are coming up over and over and over again and more than often you know if somebody for example is presenting with anxiety regularly or they have a sense of fear or sadness it just keeps coming back more than often people have unresolved stuff in their story so what you're trying to get them to see is look these emotions keep coming up because there's stuff that you haven't resolved So they're not there, they're not incorrect. They're just reminding you that there's stuff that you perhaps need to begin letting go of. And then when you begin to let go of that stuff, then you start to feel this sense of lightness and freedom. And then the third component then really is about behaviours, because most of us will engage in behaviours that try and either push the emotion down or numb it or anaesthetise it in some way. So you're really encouraging people to look at their lives and say, look, you know, are you drinking too much? Maybe taking too many drugs, maybe spending too much money maybe surrounding yourself with the wrong people you're really encouraging people to look at behaviors and think okay do these help you out or actually are they are they getting in the way of your life so it's you know people as i said earlier people think it's a nice lovely chat it's it's a lot more than that it's a complete it's a complete overhaul and a reset of the way you live your life really
1: because people do say a problem shared is a problem halved and obviously yeah facing it and taking that plunge and and, and talking about things does make a difference but then You've got to dig a little bit deeper and, and actually start yeah. putting some of what you're learning yeah. even about yourself into action, as you say. What would the you say? The thing
0: is important, yeah. Claire. It's really important. That, that's the one thing. And even with the talking thing, I'm glad you've brought that up, really, because one of the things people don't realise is that if they just go to therapy and use it as a nice old chat, it's not going to be a lot of benefit, really. So, for if you take, take for example someone who's got anxiety. Someone with anxiety goes to therapy and they just keep talking about the stuff they're worried about and they seek reassurance from the therapist. That's not going to help their anxiety. It's going to maintain their anxiety. Or if you've got somebody who has suffered depression, for example, for a long period of time and they keep ruminating over the past thinking over old details and not letting it go, well, actually that rumination is going to keep them stuck. So it's about it's about choosing. I mean, a good therapist will help you direct how you're talking and what direction it moves. And it's not just about going and splurging and talking about whatever you want. It has to be directed in a way. It has to be useful talk that then gets translated into action. And it's about, OK, well, where do you go from here? What changes might be needed to make this look different? So that's where it gets challenging. And that's where it becomes more than a nice chat. It really does encourage people to say, OK, this. it's about like going to the gym. You know, you just don't rock up at the gym and say, I'm here. It involves work. You've got to do stuff. You've got to get on the treadmill. You've got to lift the weights. You've got to be disciplined. You've got to change your diet. Therapy isn't that different, to be quite honest. It really, it, it you know, it requires you to put the work in.
1: Yeah, and be consistent to really start be feeling consistent. that. And and, to, and it takes time. It's not an overnight fix. It takes. It is. It takes you time. It does,
0: Claire, and you know, one of the most important things for me is, you know, I talk about this a lot when I do interviews, but your internal tone towards yourself is, is everything, really, because, you know, you know, I'd say probably 95% of people that come to me in therapy, when they sit down in a room with you, most people are pretty horrible to themselves, you know, in the way they talk to themselves, the way they judge themselves, just that internal critical tone, and I think good therapy helps people to get on board. But look, if you wouldn't talk to another person the way you're talking to yourself, well, then you're not treating yourself well. And I think even in therapy, if you can get people to change their tone towards themselves and just get them to start treating themselves better, you're halfway there. Because there's no point giving people loads of techniques if they're still going to talk to themselves like they're rubbish.
1: I always struggle with that one, own because people, you know, you often hear, oh, speak to yourself the way you would your best friend. But sometimes you lie to your best friend. Sometimes when your best friend says they weren't faithful or they made a big mistake, you say, it doesn't matter. And in your head, you're thinking, "Uh uh-oh. You know, I think sometimes we do coat the truth, whereas we feel like to ourselves, we're being honest. But we don't realise the impact it's actually having and how much of a loop can be going round and round. I listened to your podcast with um, Fern Cotton and that was a real penny drop. I had a load of aha moments as... Oprah coined the phrase. But one of them was a woman who came to you and said, I'm doing all the affirmations. I'm saying all the positive stuff to myself and it's not making any difference. And when you asked her to give an example of how she was saying it, she was almost shouting at herself. And I think there's so many of us use wellness in this way as a stick to beat ourselves over the head with.
0: Absolutely. And, you know, you're raising a really brilliant point though that I'm glad you picked up on, because you're right, you know, you you may, your friend comes to you and they're having a tough time and you may just say the right thing to them. You may not say the truthful thing to them, or you may not treat them as well as you want to in that moment, but that, that will come with a consequence. And we know that, like, say we had a best friend and they're going through a really tough time at the minute and things are difficult for them. You know, if we go along to them and we start judging them or criticizing them and telling them they should have done this or they should have done that, you know, we just know instinctively it's not going to help them. Whereas if we sit down with them and just say, you know something, it doesn't matter. I'm just going to sit with you and we'll work this out. It doesn't matter. I'm going to stay with you and I'm going to support you. And then you gently work towards, OK, what would make this a bit easier? What would help? What would be one positive step together we can work on today? That person just going to feel heard and validated and supported. Now, what I'm talking about here is you're not You know, you're know, not going to miss some magic wand and making it all better for them. You're just stepping in there and saying, Do you know something, regardless of what's going on, I'm going to stay with you. I'm going to support you and I guess it's kind of learning because I think there is a danger that the language becomes a bit fluffy and treat yourself well and you know be kind and all of these kind of cliches that go around but this is properly about when you feel that internal critic coming out it's about literally stopping and saying I'm not going to do this anymore I'm going to literally start working with myself and saying, no we're not going to do this today I'm going to work with you i'm going to support you it's you know it's literally finding that tone towards yourself and immediately i mean i see this in clinical practice every day you watch people's anxiety drop off you notice their mood start to improve because instantaneously they're not living with an enemy they're living with somebody internally that's much more supportive and for me you know that is probably the crux and one of the most important parts of therapy forget about you know the techniques and all of that are important and whatever type of therapy you're doing, these are all really interesting things. But if you're not treating yourself well and you're not shifting that internal voice into something that's more compassionate, more decent, more reasonable, then the rest of it won't have any impact. So that has to be the central crux of the work. It has to be.
1: It sounds so simple, and yet it is such a powerful mindset shift. And I would have always said I was an eternal optimist I practice positive thinking, gratitude, all of these things. I had assured this is what I do for a living, for God's sake. And yet I had let sort of routine thoughts get down and down and down on me. And I it was dragging me down. The reason I went was because I just wasn't feeling myself. And then just a couple of little tweaks. And you're right, that has been the one key thing, that if I catch myself saying something that isn't helpful, I just stand back now and go, no, hang on, that's not helping you anymore. And after a while, you just flex and it does make a big difference. And you're advocating only 10 minutes a day can make a huge impact.
0: I think it's better. You know, look, from experience, again, clinically, most people have got incredibly busy lives. You know, when, when I did 10 to Zen in the first book, it was, you know, it came from feedback about what people have got time to do. And again, with this self-therapy thing, you know, I decided that, you know, most people are working, they've got kids, they're trying to juggle lots of stuff. If I created a program that says you need to do an hour on yourself every day, people are just not going to be able to commit to that. Whereas these 10 minutes, what I've done is I've just used really sharp, solid techniques and I've divided it into three stages of the day, you know, morning, mid afternoon and evening. And I call that ready, steady, reset. And the ready bit is just really getting set up for your day in the right mindset. Steady bit is, you know, if you're struggling during the day, you notice you're starting to deviate off a bit. That's the kind of how do you get back on track again. And the reset bit at the end of the day is really important because most of us just don't process what's happened in our day. And I think that if you just get to the end of every day and you just kind of crash through an autopilot, this stuff is going to accumulate and you just day on day, you're just carrying all of this stuff around you with you. So it's about, okay, how can I let go of the stuff, you know, at the end of my day that I just don't need to hold on to? What's the stuff that's within my control? What's the stuff that's not? What can I let go of? So a big part of this work really is about learning that art form of letting go because, you know, there, there within is a freedom, really.
1: Well, Owen, I think you're a gift to this world. You have poured all of your knowledge from your time working in palliative care to being a psychotherapist with the NHS to everything you've learned along the way. This is a fantastic book. It is called How to Be Your Own Therapist, Boost Your Mood and Reduce Your Anxiety in Just 10 Minutes a Day. Owen O'Kane, thank you so much for coming on. Thanks so much, Claire. It's been lovely talking to you again. Alive and Kicking with Claire McKenna, Sunday morning at eight
0: on news talk